Dispatches, a production of Blurb Inc., is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hello, everyone. This is Dan with Blurb, and I am in beautiful Bondi Beach, Australia today, believe it or not. And I'm sitting here with someone I've gotten to know over the past couple of days, uh, Remo Giffray, who's done an unbelievable book with us as of late, uh, amongst many other things that he's done in his life. And I've got 21 questions in front of me in regards to Yikes. the wonderful life that he has lived. How are you doing today? Very well, thanks, Dan. It's got to be nice to wake up in Bondi every day. Oh, I, I fall to my knees every day when I wake up here. And did you get your walk in today? Uh, no, uh, well, only as far as the cafe. Okay. Um, and that's not, not enough time to do the n- normal ritual. Might have to squeeze one in later this afternoon. That's probably my fault because yeah. of uh, this interview. Uh, so, the just to go back to your book, the book that you've done is uh, remarkable to me. It's it's a six by nine flexi cover book that's a history of of your life as a creative and. Um, we're going to talk a lot more about the book in a little while, but one of the things I, I called through it, and one of the things that made me curious to get your opinion on was how thinking has changed in the digital era, if it's changed. Is there what's the digital era had? How has that impacted how we how we think? The book is called General Thinker, and you're also the director and creator of the General Thinker Network, which is a global global conglomeration of very talented, very creative people. Interesting, yeah, because I, I guess uh, I started my um, retail store uh, pre the internet, and in those days, getting f- feedback from customers was like suggestion boxes in the store and faxes received, and and designing something meant stressing over it to the point to an unreasonable level because you knew that it was just going to be printed and then done. So when the internet came along, it was a sort of a paradigm shift in thinking for a creative person because nothing was ever really finished and it's so in some ways it's more stressful because um at least with a printed in an old paradigm media you you bed it down you put it away and then you go and have a few drinks and it's done and there's nothing that can be done about it but with uh with a website, with uploaded copy, with digital photography, um, it can always be better and you can always change it and you can always tweak it and you can always rewrite that copy a little bit or upload a better version of the photograph or redesign that page or rethink that user experience. So on the one hand, it's liberating um, because it takes that pressure off the initial deadline. On the other hand, it's the opposite because it creates this kind of ongoing pressure. And that leads me into the next question, which is, and I think you've just addressed it to some degree, is has creativity changed in the digital era? So in the, with the fact that, like you said, things are sort of perpetually being, being worked on and crafted and perhaps never finished, has that changed the way that we're, we're creative as a species? I think that there are certain ancient uh, truths that don't change, and um, I'm sure that... Uh, Cavemen made many stone axes before they got the stone axe right, and there were a lot of iterations. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that there are some things that hold true. Um, so I guess that's a um, sneaky way of not answering the question, but 
I, I think fundamentally creativity is um, about um, making things better and uh, creating things that didn't exist previously and thinking through design problems and um, in my instance you know I'm driven by a desire to inform and entertain and inspire and delight and that's kind of been with me for my whole life so that's that's what drives me to develop products or lay lay type out on a page you know with a designer etc yeah I'm, I'm kind of known as a guy i mean you just saw me with the hasselblad so people mm. think that i'm a luddite that i'm sort of anti-technology but when i look at something like an ipad and i look at even something as simple as a sketching or drawing app on an ipad to, mm. for someone like me that doesn't have any kind of art background and i look at that and think well i kind of want to i kind of want to try that and then I see somebody like David Hockney, who's obviously a master painter, who then does a series with the iPad and these tools. That and was it, great. I saw that. And, yeah. and it works both ways. And I think, wow, this is this is really fundamentally changed kind of the idea of, of that maybe the, the seed of creativity is the same, but the, the technological age has said, hey, you know, everybody can throw, throw your hat in the ring. It seems... Well, the interesting thing with that Hockney, if we're thinking of the same exhibition, they were the time-lapsed... Um, because the iPad actually programmed every brushstroke so you could actually go through the story of the creation of that image, seeing everything that was changed, rubbed out, mm-hmm. erased, re-put in, tweaked. Yeah. That's, that's a whole other layer of um, entertainment, really, isn't it? It's the behind-the-scenes. It's the story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I, I turned on the news here in, uh, in Australia and uh, was watching CNN, actually, and noticed how different the CNN was here compared to the to the U.S. And you know the stories coming out are are pretty horrific around the world. All these different things, and it made me wonder: where do you see someone living a creative life? How do these? How does that fit in a world that is the way it is? I mean, with all of you know, you hear about ISIS and you hear about all these different things. Where do you see the role of the creative in in our culture today or society today? I'm not. I, I'm not sure. An obligation is too strong a word, but I think creative people uh, should engage with the things that are happening in the world and lend their talents to the alleviation of those things. Um, uh, whether that means a proportion of your output is directed toward raising awareness of things that uh, shouldn't be, or could be better, or could be different. Um, you know, I've always believed that, and I think that um, generally uh, the creative community seem both both here in Australia and in the United States and probably elsewhere in the world seem to be um, not closeted within their own um, self selfish worlds. Yeah, I, one of the questions I had was, do creatives have a responsibility to do this? And I think you mm. know, you, you and, and I, I don't know the answer. I was just was curious about that, but I think um, I think the way perhaps that, or do you think cre- the way creatives are viewed as contributors to society? Uh, and I was speaking with someone else the, here the other day that was telling me the percentage of like the annual revenue in Australia, which was created by the creative industry, was actually really sizable. Really high, yeah. But but it, it's not considered in the same way that like engineering or mining or yeah. I mean, how do you? I, feel? Uh, um, I was very close to Tibor Kalman, the designer, New York-based designer. Um, he always felt that that designers and creative people had to uh, 
work in context and had to make a contribution to the culture, had an obligation to make a contribution to the culture. He did it through his work with Colors Magazine, um, even through his work um, at the Emin Company Design Group, and uh, we, I represented them here in Australia in the late 80s and early 90s. They used to, they had a, a, a range of uh, witty merchandise that they would produce uh, during the downtime in the design studio. But I found uh, him inspirational and quite, um, uh, you know, someone that I admired in the sense that his work had uh, meaning uh, beyond its decorative um, ability to please. You know, I'm not really interested in decoration. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, where possible, I, I like the things that I work on to embody and communicate certain values and um, the communities that I gather around the things that I work on are usually uh, interconnected by, by virtue of their shared uh, appreciation and uh, of those values can someone learn to live a creative life let's say that i'll give you an example my father who was did not under didn't like art didn't like photography didn't you know sort of wanted me to be an investment banker so let's take him for example can someone learn to live a creative life and say that you are someone who looks out and says you know what i want to i want to live a different life than i'm living right now how did how would someone jump start their life if they want to aim in the direction of if trying to live a more creative life? It's a really good question. And um, I think about it, for example, I think, uh, you know, my book is in some ways a, a homage to entrepreneurship and the spirit of entrepreneurialism and, and the, um, the persistence and the stamina required to actually live that life which is not all roses, uh, as we all know. But, um, but then I meet people who are smart and who are friends of mine who don't live that life per se. They're quite happy in their job as a lawyer or in banking or in some other mm-hmm. employed capacity where there isn't the kind of traditional... Um, characteristics of entrepreneurship but even in those roles I think people can live more creatively and can try to do things differently and not be bound by the rigors of how things were done before. Mm. I was speaking to someone yesterday who's taking a very big role in in a big law firm here and he was asking my advice as to whether he should do it because he's got this entrepreneurial streak and I said, well, you know, what, what's the, what are the partners like? Uh, uh, are they willing to sort of shake things up a bit because that whole industry is due to be, you know, disrupted and um, there's less the need to have the big marble reception area and the, and the big expensive building. And, you know, you can have a little bit of bricks and mortar, but a lot of that industry can just go remote and virtual and um, you could completely change the cost structure of that industry uh, if, you, if the partners seem game and then uh, maybe it could be an incredible ride for you because you um, are dropping yourself into something which at first glance is a sort of step back into the sort of um, corporate world but Upon reflection, you might actually uh, be able to move the needle there really 
So one of the things I'm fascinated with right now is is our is the global attention span in the in the digital age where we're you know you're just on Instagram we're talking about Facebook we're talking about these things that have that have really changed our lives in a lot of ways. Mm. How do you get undivided attention for your work in a world that is 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 not giving it up very easily? Um, in my case, you tailor the work to the market by nuggetizing, <laughs> <laughs> nuggetizing the autobiography into 90 uh, standalone yeah. chapters. Yeah, I mean, smart. I didn't plan it that way, but actually it's very much um, in line with the way people consume media. I mean, I find it. I can't read a book if I'm not on holidays. You know, yeah. it's, it's not the sort of thing I can do. You're not alone. Even my son, Roman, who is not a big reader, proudly declared that he'd read the first 10 chapters of my book. You know, so I thought, well, that is really wow. something. That's incredible. Uh, maybe he wanted something in return, like, you know, <laughs> a, a gift for that. Um, one of the things that you talked about in your book that I, that I love was you discussed suffering brilliant failure, which I think is another great, great title. What is that? I, I, I think failure is something that's look, very much looked down upon today. Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, and you've, you've certainly suffered some. Is failure looked at differently today than it was 20, 30 years ago, and, and how do you feel about failure? I think it's... Um, I think certainly in Australia the situation has improved, although it's not to the point where it is in the United States, where I always found that failure was always regarded more as delayed success than anything else because of the sort of enduring sense of hope that is baked into a large percentage of the population there which is why I get on well with with the US with the US and particularly New Yorkers because um, not only do they have hope but they'll like you know tell you exactly what <laughs> exactly what they think at all times and and not um, hedge uh, not dance around it but but yeah there is a certain still a certain level of shame associated with failure and um, I was not immune to that, you know, the, the, because in my case, failure meant other people being hurt, mm-hmm. creditors losing money, investors losing money. Um, there was never any um, malice. Uh, there was never any uh, intent to fail. There was always a naive assumption that, that it wouldn't fail because the idea was too good and that eventually someone or something would take it out and recapitalize it and everything would live happily ever after. And so when that actually didn't occur, it was a big, big deal for me. And because my persuasive skills are so strong, I was able to create a a hole of unsecured debt that the administrator was in awe of (laughs) for a small business. He said he'd never seen a small business with a $2 million uh, hole, you know, so yeah, um, that's commendable. That's a sizable <laughs> hole. Well, it's nothing really to be proud of in retrospect, but um, you know, it does explain um, the the feeling of falling that happened when I actually went over that edge for all the wrong reasons. Of course, the it, the business didn't fail through lack of um, demand. In fact, uh, it failed at the peak of its popularity, which is all the more reason why there is this orphaned and global community of customers who kind of all of a sudden had to go cold turkey mm-hmm. with what they had come to love and feel <clears throat> unreasonably loyal uh, about. 
Um, so, so it's taken actually a lot of years for, for me to start to think about that Remo General Store experience because that's what we're talking about there with that big failure in 1995 um, as a successful experience as opposed to ultimately a failure. Mm-hmm. So on a you know, scale of 1 to 10... In my half-empty glass days, someone would say, well, how successful was the Remo General Store? And I said, well, you know what? We could have, it could have been a big deal. It could have been, you know, a Williams-Sonoma size business. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't, so, you know, I give it four or five out of ten. Then I'll meet someone who's got, you know, my name tattooed on their arm or, uh, <laughs> or they named, no, or eternity tattooed on their arm or they named their, you know, son after me or, and I, like I'll literally every week, and this is, you know, whatever it is, 20 years after the store closed, yeah. every week I'll, I'll, someone will tell me a story about how it changed their life. You know, yeah. they used to go there as a design student and spend their lunchtime walking through thinking about, well, if this case, if this place can be like this, then I can be whatever I want to be and be yeah. creative, you know. So it inspired a whole generation. So then I kind of score it more then highly. Then it's an eight or a nine. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned something a second ago about a glass half full, half empty. You, mm. you said you're a version of yourself. One of the things you talked about in the book that I really liked was the idea of optimism and uh, how optimism played a part in your past. And being around you over the past week, there, you do sort of emit this sense of the, everything is always going to be fine. How is optimism, how does it play a part in your life today? And, and has it always historically been sort of one of your key go-to, go-to tools? Yes, and um, even... So I felt it for a long time before I kind of was able to figure out why it was so useful. And I tell the story in the book, it's actually the first chapter, of um, um, when my wife uh, Melanie and um, now two children decided to return to Sydney, having lived in the US, we um, we were um, on a ferry from Bayshore to Fire Island and um, just the day before, I had had a conversation with the founders, the San Francisco-based founders of a, a print-on-demand uh, T-shirt business called Cafe Press. Mm-hmm. And they had um, heard of my old store, really loved what we had done with T-shirts, and they'd suggested this mechanism whereby they would warehouse Remo-branded T-shirts and enable me to put a whole portfolio of designs um, uh, online, uh, basically private labeled, private labeling um, cafe press. Anyway, bottom line is that it, it, it gave me um, a glimmer of hope about returning this brand to its customers. And uh, I remember feeling this overwhelming sense of optimism, but then remembered feeling, well, it may or may not work, and that doesn't matter. I'm feeling this way, and mm-hmm. so this is actually characterizing the quality of my life now, the way I'm feeling, regardless of the outcome. So I, when I got to Lonelyville, I, um, which was the name of the town in Fire Island where we had a house momentarily, I called a friend in Los Angeles, and he, um, he quoted me back Robert Louis Stevenson and said, to travel, who said, to travel hopefully 
is a better thing than to arrive and the true success is to labor. So of course that was very humbling because it was exactly what I was feeling and expressed way more elegantly of course. <laughs> um, and naturally I turned that into a Remo t-shirt. Of that course. Quote. But uh, so it makes me understand more about myself and the fact that the optimistic uh, gene or nature has uh, characterized and uh, given richness to my um, life, even though um, I've never really hit that home run from a business point of view mm-hmm. as traditionally measured in terms of you know, yeah. financial gain or right return. like you would be living in bondi icebergs <laughs> <laughs> that's right well you know you you do point out something uh paradoxical even though uh we do uh now melanie and i well into our 50s live somewhat on a month-to-month basis financially we do happen to live in paradise you and do. so we can't complain so you said something very interesting a second ago and i want which leads me to a question i want to jump ahead of here a little bit and you talked about how you felt optimistic at the time, and you're basically in a, in a whirlwind with this T-shirts and Cafe Press, and then you have this sort of moment of calm where you're like, this feels really good. Mm. Are you creatively obsessive, and does that, is that a requirement to do what you do? And I think one of the things that you were sort of talking around is the idea, and we've all heard this a million times, especially in the last 10 years, is about living in the now. And it's really hard to do that. Because when you're in the whirlwind of the creative world and you've got all these business dealings, a portion of our brain is always looking like, what's, what's five minutes from now? What's 24 hours? What's a year? What if I hit the, hit the big time? Are, is this an obsessive thing for you? And if someone wants to live a life like this, do they have to be equally as obsessive? Yeah, but the obsession is joyful obsession. You know, creative obsession is, is joyful obsession. The, and I felt this way with the book, actually, because the deadline that I was... Um, it was a Given short deadline. By uh, <laughs> Eileen at Bloop was very, very short, but invigoratingly, you know, challenging. And uh, I uh, realized it had to, had to happen. I realized I had probably 10 or 12 of the 90 ideas and I had to generate the other 70 or 80. That's a lot. Nuggets from my life and extract them um, in short order. So that was uh, creative, but um, but yeah, obsession, really caring um, about uh, how things uh, look and feel and sound, and um, I think that's probably um, a characteristic shared by a lot of creative people who um, want to do their best work, want to do their best work for themselves, want to do their best work to maximise the the appeal and the desire um, that is created by the work, which is felt by others. Um, a friend of mine uh, who's um, sort of a comedian here um, reckons that the body is made up of 90% praise. So um. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Talk about optimistic. I like that. Uh, this goes back to something that I, I found in the book that I thought was very interesting is when you were younger, you spoke about kind of feeling a little bit like an outsider, and then one day kind of realized, well, I think maybe uh, being an outsider is a little bit okay, that maybe creative people are in some way, shape, or form outsiders. Is, mm. How do you feel? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's an accurate um, assessment. The, the Coming from an Italian um, 
background here within what was at the time a fairly Anglo-Saxon-centric society kind of put me right at the outer edge anyway. I mean, Italians have probably moved closer to the centre and now it's the Sudanese that are at that edge or the, mm-hmm. or, uh, the Afghanis, or etc. Uh, there's always another whipping, whipping boy minority group to yes. uh, take over. Um, but, um, yeah, so that was kind of part of the outsiderness. Uh, also, um, wanting, not necessarily wanting to be uh, associated with any one particular tribe of um, sub-tribe within us, like the school community, and wanting to kind of move around made me feel um, not particularly aligned with any... Um, any, any of those, any main subculture in particular, mm-hmm. and uh, um, but yeah, in my sometime in my mid to late teens, that started to feel like more of a positive than a negative. Maybe it, did it give you a little because you weren't part of that mainstream? Maybe you had more time to actually think and create and sort of figure out where your place in the world is or was. Mm. I'm not sure how conscious I was. Uh, and one of the interesting, and I would recommend like this book writing gig for anybody yeah, um, because it does, it is very self-illuminating, you know, to actually pick back over your um, experiences and in my case, you know, nagatize them, um, which makes them easier to create because you're not just writing this like, singular connected narrative sure um and then uh it helps you connect a lot of the dots uh that weren't connected before and the harbor cruise that i organized when i was 19 and the way i marketed the tickets by allocating packs to the attendees who who were then responsible for on selling to their friends is kind of it's like a pyramid scheme it's a version of the network (laughs) marketing which i kind of was um developing and perfecting through my work with the store later but I'd never actually thought about it that way until I had to write about it okay um the poem that I wrote about dreaming when I was 13 um now seems very congruent with the Robert Louis Stevenson thing because it was about this enduring sense of hope that I might score the try at the football game being more important than actually ever scoring the try at the football game. So. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you that, that do you, about daydreaming mm. and about dreaming. I did read the portion about dreaming in your book. Is do you, This sounds like a strange question, but do you daydream? I don't know. I don't really daydream as, you know, as if you're defining that as like drifting off and being absent-minded and... Uh, Not absent-minded, uh, but like... Well, like I watched you at Icebergs the other day and you had your phone and you had your iPad mini right. and, I, and I could see you and the wheels were turning in yeah. your head and we were there and there were other people around and you know everybody over there. But yeah. there were moments where I was like, Remo is doing his thing right now. Right. And it was phone to iPad to swim to back. And I thought, okay, this is like how, this is the process for you. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I guess it's just a nomenclature thing there. So uh, it's more... Um, this ill-defined um, process. Just of, visualization. Yeah. 
instead of daydreaming. Yeah. Because daydreaming can mean like you're like you said, you're just drifting off and not thinking about anything. But no, that's not what I was. Yeah, I will. Um, I woke up with an image of a cartouche to go on the front of the book that would have a little stick man in the middle and uh, some type around it, which would say, you know, order online from globe.com slash general thinker. Of course, now having thought about it, I thought, well, why would any bookstore actually let me put that on the book, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so maybe it's yeah. not, a, but, but I thought it was a funny thing that I kind of woke up with this kind of visualization in my head. So I must have, uh, you know, dreamed about uh, die cut stickers in the middle of the night. What role does Australia play in your work? And is Bondi, there's this expression out there about power spots. Everybody, most, most artists have a spot or a place where they connect for whatever reason. Is, is What role does Australia play and is Bondi your power spot? Right. Well, I hadn't heard that term before, but I guess Bondi is my power spot. And the icebergs probably, and the pool and the icebergs, and maybe that corner. That which, corner. Yeah, the corner, which is right there at the at where the waves break. Um I live in Bondi, and Bondi happens to be in Sydney. That's kind of the way I think about it. Um, and Sydney happens to be in Australia. And I'm very happy to be here, but um, certainly in terms of where I feel uh, the most connected and the most grounded, it's, it's here in Bondi, or specifically at the beach. And is, is Australia in general, is there, is there an atmosphere or a feeling here that you have that's different from, say, when you lived in New York? That, did, does that influence your life or your work, being, just being in Australia? I think it does. Um, I think you live a more interesting life in New York. There's just more, um, more happening, more stimulation, more, more things going on more um, synapses going off at all times because it's just so much. Um, and um, But, you know, maybe you don't need to live your whole life that way. I'm quite happy to um, be call this home and uh, it would be great to be able to spend some time back there, of course, from time to time. The dual, the dual life, yeah. New York mm. and, and, and uh, Bondi. So we have a, a video interview that we're going to do here upcoming, which we've got a lot of stuff to cover about the book specifically. Right. But what's, to, end, to end this audio interview, where, where am I going to see you in the future? What, what's in store for you down, down the line? It's very tantalizing. Um, the book, regardless of how it does um, commercially, uh, has probably served to codify and aggregate and summarize a lot of what I'm about. So I think it's going to provide me with an interesting platform from which other opportunities will spawn, if you don't mind me using that word, spawn. Love the word spawn. So, you know, I don't necessarily, I've never really necessarily thought of myself as being on the quote unquote speaker's circuit. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel that the book, although about me, is potentially very useful to others who are experiencing similar things that I've experienced over the years. And so I'd like to, it would give me joy to share that with uh, audiences. So I'll um, apply, 
I hope to apply the same discipline and rigor and systematic work that I applied to creating the book to generating a set of you know modules that I can then um, assemble um, on the fly to uh, tailor any particular um, corporate or other audience. Um, so I'll do a bit of that. And um, I've also, I mean, the difference between, you know, a lot of people who write this kind of book have done their doing and are now sort of just talking about the things that they've done. Well, I'm still sort of still in the middle of the doing bits. You mm-hmm. know, I'm still the licensee for TEDx Sydney. Exactly. It's a kind of a mammoth um, yeah. thing, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm still working on the development of the, these cultural cafe hub space things. And I'm in active negotiations with property developers here in Sydney to do the first one. So, you know, I think kind of part of the um, one of the differentiators um, for, for general thinker is, th- is that th- this is not um, me in the... T- autumn or twilight of my life you know writing a book this is kind of this is writing a book from the trenches while I'm still fighting the war you know it, it feels to me it feels like a, a, st- a start it's like another start yeah I mean this feels like the beginning of another creative mountain that you're about to climb yeah and when you get to the top and start coming down the other side you're going to be going so fast like who knows where you're going to end yeah up. no it's going to be fun excellent Definitely. well I appreciate you taking the time to do this and um, I've had a lot of fun hanging out with you and meeting your friends and, and seeing the work in the book is beautiful. So I look forward to this, uh, this other interview that we're going to do in about uh, 15 minutes. But uh, thanks, for, thanks for taking thanks, the time. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Bye-bye.